Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook, joined again today by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. I'm afraid there's still no football to talk about, but Charlie, what has been going on at Tottenham with the wage cut talks? Yeah, they're ongoing. I mean, we, we talked about that last week, didn't we? That we didn't think there was going to be any an imminent breakthrough. Um, and as of like the end of last week, uh, that broadly remained the same. Um, so I wrote a piece, uh, I think, that went up on Friday. And that was sort of talking about some of the reasons why a breakthrough remains elusive. And obviously, a big part of that is they remain elusive for almost every Premier League club as well it's you know it's a very complicated picture and then looked a little bit at how some players um, feel they've been undervalued in the past and you know this is something we've talked about previously as well and that that might be a factor as well in um, the negotiations being a bit more complex um, than at some other clubs. Yeah we've really seen it roll on at Chelsea, Arsenal took a very long time to resolve as well, so I think there's no reason to suspect that this should be a simple process, especially given what we know about the um, the sort of tensions that exist between the Tottenham dressing room and Daniel Levy when it comes to the matter of pay. So today f- for the podcast, we have asked you to send in your questions, uh, which you've done. Thank you very much to everybody who sent in a question to The Athletic. We're going to get through a few of them today that we wanted to talk about. We're going to start off with a question from... Andy A. This one's for you, Charlie. It's, how do you think the suspension of the season and lost revenues is going to affect this summer's transfer budget? Do you think Tottenham are affected any more or less than other Premier League teams, given they were also relying on non-football events for additional revenue? Yeah, this is this is a big issue. Uh, and I've written about it once or twice, that they are there, there are fears that Tottenham could be uh, affected quite badly because... A, they're more reliant on match day revenue uh, than a lot of clubs, proportionally speaking. And then there are all these additional events. So if you think that the the cost of the stadium was justified, the business plan was that, look, we're going to be bringing in loads of revenue every match day. And on top of that, we can put on concerts, we can put on rugby matches, we can put on boxing fights, all of these sort of things. So it totally made sense. The numbers stacked up. And then you just wipe all of that out. That is, uh, that's very worrying. And I know a lot of people think, but, you know, Tottenham have lots of money. They've posted record profits. Um, but suddenly you take away all their revenues and the picture looks very different. So it, it, it is a big issue. Uh, will it affect their transfer budget? I think it will, yes. I think every club will be affected to varying degrees. I think the ones that aren't are the ones that don't really live in the real world. And I'm thinking they're mainly clubs like Man City who you know, have a very different business model to a club like Tottenham who want to be self-sustaining uh, and only really spending money that they're bringing in. So it, it is going to make a difference. I think like the the transfer window is going to be so, so different from what it's been in previous years. Like I think we might have to slightly rewire our expectations on those kind of things. Um, and I know that's not what fans want to hear, but this was something Levy... Uh, has been quite quick to recognize and if you remember even in his initial statement on I think it was March 31st when uh, he announced pay cuts and furloughing that was something he acknowledged that people kind of need to get real and this is a huge huge crisis and challenge to clubs so yeah it's going to make a difference and their business model um, and its reliance to a degree on matchday revenues uh, will contribute to that. 
Yeah, I definitely think there's been a slight air of unreality about the way that lots of people have spoke, continued to speak about transfers over the course of the last month or two. Like nothing, nothing winds me up more than seeing, you know, plenty of outlets do this. You know, Club A planning one hundred million pound swoop for player X, and you just think like, really, like given everything we know is going on in the real world and the effect is happening on club finances, like that, you know, these deals are not going to be happening. Anyway, this mm. question two. This is from Jack Z, and it's for James. Should this season start again and we have a fully fit squad to go, presuming everyone is at 100% and adequate Prem fitness, no Ndombele fitness issues, what formation and starting eleven do you believe Mourinho will pick? And I'd probably like to expand this question to be both what do you think Jose will pick and James, what would you pick if you were in the dugout? Well, I mean, I, I'd, go through, I'd go through my team first. I mean, it is... This has been a real stark reminder of the state that this squad is in, and I obviously hadn't really thought about this much in the last few weeks. But um, just looking at it this morning, so obviously you'd have Lloris in goal. I think I think Gazaniga's form during the spell Lloris was injured has probably killed off any argument that he was a better goalkeeper. And I know there were some people that thought that might be the case. Um, on performances this and you're ruling out Michelle Vaughan. I'm ruling out Michelle Vaughan as well. Yes, yes, I am. Uh, based on performances this season, d- despite <laughs> despite some of my criticism, you you probably have to say Sergio Aurier would be there at right back, across the back four. Not been many amazing performances at, at centre back. Tanganga's done well. But if we're assuming everyone's fit, I'd probably say Alderweireld and Sanchez. Although that is that is two right footers, which perhaps not ideal. Ben Davies at left back because well, who else are you going to play there? Uh, with respect to Vertonghen, I just I'm just not sure from what we've seen so far this season that that that's uh, that's ever going to end well. Uh, if you're playing Aurier, you probably need to psycho him in the field to cover for the inevitable blunders. With respect, so he has to be in there. We know Lacelso has to be in the team because, as we were saying last week, he's made himself undroppable very quickly. Uh, so then you're in a position where you've got a decision between whether or not you're going to play a four-three-three or a four-two-three-one. If you're playing a 4-3-3, then yeah, you can play Ndombele or, or Harry Weeks in there as well. Uh, otherwise, you're probably talking about playing a 4-2-3-1 and then having Son on the left, Deli off of the striker and Lamella or Lucas, maybe Bergbein on the right. And then obviously Harry Kane as you send them forward. Um, so your decision maybe is almost, do you play on Ndombele in midfield and make it a three, or do you play Deli Ali as the number ten and go four two three one? I think that's probably the the kind of, to my mind, the bigger decision. Um, as for what Mar- I, I don't actually think that's massively different to what Mourinho would do either. I mean, I, I'd be interested to hear you, you guys' thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a really good team. Like I wrote out my team earlier, and it's it's very similar to what you said there, James. I mean, to me, it came down to whether you either go for that. Sissoko or Winks um, alongside Lacelso in a two or whether you make that a three and bring in someone like Ndombele or whether you start uh, Bergvine because I think Deli, Son and Kane are pretty undroppable um, so yeah th- th- those would be that to me looks like the main area of uh, of dilemma I suppose for Jose if everyone's fit I mean Bergvine is still injured uh, and even if obviously the season's not going to restart for a while but he'll be out for a little bit so he he's the only one probably of the squad who won't be fit if if they start reasonably soon. I think I'd probably want Ndombele in there, even though I know that that would have to come at the cost of Bergwijn, who has looked really good so far. I just think maybe I'm just still 
got slightly roasted in spectacles when it comes to Ndombele. I do think he's an amazing player. I do also recognise, you know, I hold my hands up and acknowledge all the obvious flaws in his game and his approach since he's been at Tottenham, uh, which we've covered more than enough on the podcast over the season. I guess ultimately, if I was, if I could have any confidence about getting like a good Ndombele or even like 60 minutes of good Ndombele, I'd go 4-3-3, not start Bergwijn, but then bring on Bergwijn for Ndombele and switch to 4-2-3-1 when Ndombele is, you know, unable to drag himself around the pitch anymore early on in the second half. I mean, bear in mind, Jack C is offering us no Ndombele fitness issues. So, you know, got to factor that in or out. I know, that's a very, um, very, very optimistic premise, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, next question is from Michael D. It's from Charlie. Thomas Mounier, yes or no? My information is that that isn't is not going to happen, uh, and that he's more likely to move elsewhere. Um, so we'll have to see. I mean, I think there has been interest, um, but yeah, I've been told it's not going to happen. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. If you think someone who's been at PSG as a free agent, his wage demands are probably going to be pretty high, and I'm not sure Spurs are going to be willing to go there when they're going to have to be pretty shrewd and looking for bargains obviously he's a bargain in the sense that he won't have a transfer fee um but yeah i've been told it won't happen but these things can change it'll be interesting to see i think there are a lot of clubs that are interested in him this is an interesting one isn't it so i did hear over the weekend and this has been reported in in france as well i think that Mourinho has spoken to Mounier on the phone so there clearly is some degree of interest there but like charlie says like these things are very difficult to pull off particularly given that you know Mounier currently plays in Champions League club. I imagine that most of his offers will come from Champions League clubs. Tottenham are probably not going to be in the Champions League next season, whenever that, whenever that starts. Um, and I'm sure he could probably get more money elsewhere as well. Like Borussia Dortmund have been linked with him. I'm sure there'd be plenty of teams around Europe who would who would want him. But I think he would also he do, he does absolutely make sense to me as a Mourinho signing. Like he's, you know, he's a 28 year old right back. He's big. He's experienced got international he comes from a big club played international football like he he ticks basically every box i would imagine for Mourinho, except for the fact that it sounds as if they can't get it over the line yet but i wonder if they might you know they might have to look down the list but it does you know it does point to the fact that they are willing to spend money on a center back sorry on a right back this summer which is probably something that we've been talking that they certainly need to do uh next one is a bit of fun for james this is from jonathan s which players have most disappointed you relative to your expectations upon joining Spurs? Soldado, Rebrov, who makes your all-time 11? I'm not sure we need 11, James, but if well, you can give us a few. <laughs> yeah, well, I have been kind of trying to cobble together a team. And I, I, I don't know if it's purely on the basis of not having high expectations of defenders, really. But but other than Dean Richards, who you, know, you don't want to speak too ill of, obviously, given he's no longer with us. Um I don't. I can't really think of any defenders that I've, that I've had really high expectations for, as like a big signing, that haven't that haven't hit the mark or goalkeepers. To be honest, as a as a big advocate of uh, Jorelio Gomez, we don't need to go into all of that now. Maybe we'll do that in another week. Um, <laughs> but I, I can give you a midfield and a front two that I think is sort of logical. So David Bentley on the right wing. Uh, I mean that was just an absolute disaster. I, I really did think he was going to be the answer for Spurs in 2008. He had a great season with Blackburn in 2007-8, didn't he? Um, 
I think he probably set up Rocky Santa Cruz for about a dozen goals in the Premier League. It was, it was a ludicrous combination, and it, it, it didn't work out for him at Spurs at all. Um, just felt like, yeah, maybe he didn't really have the appetite for it or, or whatever else. It just, you know, it just didn't work. Uh, in midfield, Paulinho, again, another another big money signing that really felt like it, it, he was like a perfect fit, and for whatever reason, it just didn't work for him in the Premier League. Alongside him, Tungu on Dombele. No more needs to be said on that. Uh, Giovanni Dos Santos, again, I think, I mean, he had a really good season, mainly made of a cameo to Barcelona in the year before he joined. I've got a vague memory that he might have scored a hat-trick for them right at the end of that season. I could be completely wrong. Maybe it was in pre-season. But I just have this, I have this memory of uh, Dos Santos feeling like he was going to be like a massive, you know, it was like a massive coup for the club to be signing a player from Barcelona. Uh, up front, Vincent Janssen. Again, I mean, I don't think you need to say too much about that. Helder Pastiga, who you know came from the European Champions, was an exciting young player who had a good season for Porto under Jose Mourinho the season before he joined Spurs uh, and scored one league goal, I think one league cup goal, and then was sent packing back to Portugal uh, after 12 months. So you know, the names that are missing there, I guess, are Soldado, who clearly, clearly had a bad time at Tottenham, but I think actually looked at a, a decent player uh, who else did you have? Pavlichenko. I mean, I won't have a bad word said about about Roman Pavlichenko. So really, yeah, no, he's fa- he was a fantastic footballer, brilliant, some fantastic moments. That goal he scored away at Bolton, that where it's kind of come dropping from really high in the air, and he just hit that volley, yeah. a really powerful, like perfectly controlled volley, it was superb. Great scored some big goals as well. I mean, yeah, Inter, exactly. Chelsea, young boys as well in the Champions League. Yeah, uh, playoff it was like a really big goal in the away leg where Spurs really were all at sea. To be honest. Um, so yeah, clearly not, clearly not, you know, a superstar, particularly by the standards of kind of contemporary Spurs teams. But I, I thought he was he was decent. What about Lewis Holtby? Ah, oh, yeah, that's a, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose the thing about Lewis Holtby is that he only came, he was like two and a half million or something, wasn't it? It wasn't a lot of money. I mean, he really did flat to the seed, didn't yeah. he? Uh, My memory of Holtby is that because he, he came at like. What, when did they sign him? Was it 2012, I think? Yeah. I think that January, it was going to be January 2013, or it was around, it was during the 2012 13 season. Yeah, it was January 2013, yeah, you're right. But this was obviously like, you know, Germany had just been pretty impressive at the 2010 World Cup. This was right at that, like, peak of the German youth system's the best in the world. They're all amazing. Like, people were just, you know, obviously, Ozil was doing well at Real Madrid. The whole, like, German generation that eventually won the 2014 World Cup was, like, at their peak. Like, it's a joke that they didn't win Euro 2012. But, um, and obviously Holtby was, like, not as good as Ozil and Muller and Neuer and the rest of those guys. But he was, like, on the fringes, I guess, and, like, he had represented Germany at youth level and everything. And so people thought he was going to be amazing. Like, people literally thought he was going to be as good as Goethe because he came from Schalke. And he was rubbish. Like, he was complete rubbish, unfortunately. I, I think I think it's a bit unfair to say he was complete rubbish. I just think he, so, he sorry, was Sorry, that of, is unfair. That is unfair. That is, yeah, good. Um, but I'd say he's probably he's a bit of a sort of jack of all trades master of none really wasn't he I, I don't think he had like I mean even now I couldn't really tell you what his best position was or what his strengths as a player were other than running around and having good social media accounts I'm not do you know what I mean I just, I just feel yeah. like I, I, he was kind of like 6 out of 10 at more or less everything which you know maybe in a worse team would have been fine and it would have made him a cult hero somewhere else but at a Spurs team kind of pushing for Champions League football it wasn't quite enough yeah, particularly when like his rivals for that those kind of positions were like Ericsson and Sigurdsson, 
who are just miles better. Yeah, technically, yeah, infinitely better. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he's now at Blackburn and injured, sadly. Yeah. Got quite a bad injury. I can't think of any other submissions for this. What about is Stambouli? Stambouli wasn't like highly rated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, was he? people like that. I mean, he, he Fazio. Was poor, but yeah, and again, Fazio. I mean, I, I guess Fazio was probably eight or nine million pounds, and that felt like quite a lot for a centre back. So maybe there was a bit of expectation, and he was rubbish. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say I was excited about Fazio when he signed. Next one for Charlie. This is from Daniel R. What has happened to Juan Foyth, and do you think he should essentially replace Jan Vertonghen next season? Another good question. I mean, but by essentially replace Vertonghen, is that to say then kind of first reserve centre-back, are we thinking, um, on the assumption that Vertonghen leaves and then you need someone to come in and provide competition for Sanchez and Alderweireld? Um, I mean, he's definitely good enough to do that. I think he's a really, really good player. Um I, th- I think it's a shame it hasn't worked out for him as yet. You know, we reported uh, earlier in the season that he was, you know, if he wasn't going to start getting games, he wanted to leave. And then Mourinho played him uh, against Bayern Munich in that dead rubber, and he did really well. And, you know, Mourinho was quite pointed saying he wasn't going to be going anywhere. Then he played him against Norwich, and he made a mistake. You know, he he did he tried to bring the ball out, but, you know, it was one of those mistakes where it's like you're doing the right thing, but you get caught. And I think as a young player, that will happen. Uh, and he hasn't played since. I think it's a real shame. You know, the uh, kind of logical reading is that he and Mourinho aren't hugely compatible. You know, Foyth is a slight ball-playing centre-back and that hasn't typically been what Mourinho's wanted from his central defenders. I was watching before the... I may have said this before, but bef- prior to the Leipzig home game, I was watching uh, the Dortmund game from last season, the home game, where uh, Spurs won 3-0. And Foyth started that game in a back three and played really, really well. He he actually did make a mistake that led to a good chance, but on the ball he was fantastic and just looked so composed and did make me um, you know, think... Could he not be doing a job? I hope then that he will be given time and be given more chances. But I think it is running out because he's he wants to play. He's a really good player. He's got a lot of Argentina caps already for a young guy, uh, often playing at right back, which you know I think a lot of fans have talked about this season. Could he play at right back? Uh, and then you have Cessnion at left back, so kind of flip the Ben Davis-Aurier dynamic. Um but yeah, we'll have to see. He's he's not going to wait around forever. He's a really good player and he may just think his skill set is better suited to another team and possibly in another league. Um, you know, he, he he's not the most typical young Premier League defender, although obviously that's changing. Um, so yeah, we'll have to see. But I think he's a really, really good prospect and I'd love to see him be given the opportunity to make mistakes uh, and to learn from them and, and become a better player because, you know as modern ball-playing centre-backs go, I think he's got a, re- a real shot at making it. I feel a bit sorry for Foyt because there was, I think, quite a high expectation over the summer that, or last summer, I should say, that this was going to be his season, that this was going to be his opportunity to make a breakthrough. And he played for Argentina at right-back in, in the Copa America last summer. Uh, and there was kind of a suggestion that that might be where he'd play for Spurs. And I think he played there maybe in pre-season and he obviously did. got injured right at yeah. the start of pre-season. Um, he was going to be the starting right back probably and then got that injury yeah yeah and then obviously you know he he never got his chance again but I I do actually wonder whether he almost kind of suffers a little bit in in the same way to Lewis Holtby funnily enough in that his versatility almost has maybe worked against him a little bit and nobody is quite sure 
what his strongest position is. You know, people have talked about him obviously as a centre back, as a right back, and as a defensive midfielder as well. And I just wonder whether that that has kind of prevented him from getting the minutes that otherwise he would have done. It makes him like a perfect substitute because you can kind of chuck him on in any one of three positions. But in terms of like starting matches, maybe maybe that's kind of not worked in his favour. Yeah, maybe it is as a centre-back in a three. I, I think, you know, as I say, against Dortmund, he looked really good there. And that's definitely an option um, for him where he can get on the ball and start attacks from, from deep. Yeah, I'd like to also um, admit my membership to the Wan Forth fan club. I think he's an amazing defender to watch. There's not that many young defenders out there who are just as comfortable and natural on the ball as him, although obviously he has some work to do on the other side of his games. OK, just one more quick question before we move on. Uh, this is a question from Jim L for James. I've tried very hard, but I just can't see a positive outcome from the Mourinho era at Spurs. What can you say to make me more optimistic? Oh, I mean, it won't last forever. I mean, that might, I don't know. It's not the worst thing going on in the world right now. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I have to admit, having gone through that, having gone through the current squad to, to kind of pick a team now, it did, it did really make me... It was just like a, a kind of stark reminder of exactly how far Spurs are away are away from like a kind of coherent side. Um, w- whether or not this quote unquote downtime will actually work in Spurs' favour, I guess we'll see. It kind of feels like a bit of a roll of the dice, you know. Whether uh, it'd be interesting to know how Mourinho spent his time if he's been like watching every single video of every single player in the squad, you know, every match they've played to try and unearth some. You know some kind of new tactical master plan then maybe we'll see a different tottenham when uh when football returns but yeah i i i'd be concerned for for spurs going forward i mean i, I you know we'll have to see what happens with in with regards to recruitment and whatever else but i i think having having said there are a lot of good players in the squad which they definitely are i i kind of feel like they're still probably three or four players away from having like a really good team that actually works yeah it's interesting because I, I looked at that eleven and it was actually quite encouraged. When you think that, I mean, obviously it's a big if with everyone being fit and whatever. But assuming that is the case for a little bit, you've then potentially got like Ndombele, Mora, um, players like that to come off the bench and change the game. Obviously, we've talked about Juan Foyth. Um, so I don't know. I don't. I don't think the team looks that badly. I I, I appreciate there is a balance issue there. Um, but yeah, I think like the, the players are, are definitely good enough to you know to be getting Champions League football. Um, but I, I accept that it's not quite where it was like a year, two, three, four years ago. Um, but also, I think to, to answer the question of what could you say to make me op- more optimistic, I guess uh, you would say that Mourinho hasn't had a preseason yet. He's come midway through a pretty turbulent campaign, and that's always going to be difficult. So maybe and i'm sure he would argue this that give him a bit of time he can really get his message across and then you'll see the real Mourinho's tottenham how good that will be i don't know but i think that would be that would be his thinking so yesterday sunday should have been the north london derby and it would have been the first men's north london derby at the new tottenham stadium uh, Guys, how much did you miss not having this game? Yeah, having said last week that I hadn't really been thinking about the fixtures that we've been missing, this definitely felt like one that 
it, it would have really made uh, the weekend, wouldn't it? I mean, the weather was really nice. I think, I, I don't know if people saw, but the groundsman tweeted a picture of, of the pitch uh, on Sunday afternoon. It, it looked in an incredible condition, obviously the sun shining down. You know, it's it's very nice to imagine, uh, or maybe not so nice to imagine, you know, what, uh, what an afternoon that would have been. Yeah, I guess it really kind of hit home how how uh, how much we've missed of the season, really, because this this match feels like so far detached from where where we were in the season. You know, the, the last time a match was played, I think we're sort of five or six games down the line now. And it's kind of quite difficult to work out what this game actually would have been because it, it could have been anything from a crucial match in the battle for Champions League places to like a complete irrelevance between two teams sat in, in the very middle of mid-table. Yeah, I, I, I was saying this to James earlier. Most weekends it, it's felt so uh, distant that I haven't really thought too much about what would have been happening. But yesterday I did get a few pangs and I checked my watch, it was about 6.30 and I was thinking, God, this would be like, the game would just have finished and how strange that was it felt it felt like another universe but yeah and we just have no idea a when it will be played again and b what the situation would have been uh, i i feel like at least one of the two teams would still have been in the hunt i think it would still have been uh, there would have been something at stake but yeah very very strange thinking about how um how far away we feel from from playing this game i think james has written a really good piece about the the emotions of North London Derby, which you can read on The Athletic. We've actually got a 90-day free trial going on at the moment, so you can access that by going to theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod. Um, theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod. Um, James, I know this is a kind of stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Who would have won? Oh, I mean, <laughs> it feels like the most likely result it would have been like a 1-1 draw with a, with a Harry Kane penalty, I guess, because... You know, that seems to be the way these games are going at the moment. A draw definitely feels like the smart money, given how many of them there have been in recent North London derbies. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, right, we're going to wrap up by just looking back through some recent-ish North London derbies, or rather, maybe not our favourite ones, but which North London derbies in the last however many years do we think have been the most significant in terms of the power shift, I think is the right phrase, between Arsenal and Tottenham. Um, I've got a few. James, do you want to kick us off? Well, funnily enough, I actually think that the one that we've just missed out on probably potentially could have been quite significant in terms of Spurs sort of just, just keeping their noses in front of Arsenal. Because as I wrote in this piece, it feels very much already like it's sort of started to swing back a little bit the other way and Arsenal have maybe got a little bit more forward momentum than, than Spurs do at the moment. Um but I guess we won't know for the time being. Uh, the first one that springs to mind would probably be the, the game of White Hart Lane in uh, April 2010, when Spurs had just lost in the semi-finals of the FA Cup to Portsmouth and had back-to-back games against Arsenal and Chelsea at White Hart Lane and really needed to get six points to, to kind of help their battle for a Champions League place. And this was the game where Danny Rose obviously famously scored his his debut goal from sort of 25 yards. And I had an absolutely fantastic view of that goal, like right right down the barrel from behind. And then he had the good grace to run the full length of the pitch and celebrate right in front, which was which was very generous. Um, but I mean, obviously, uh, you know, <laughs> you can draw draw a quite direct comparison if you look at the the game in April or May 2017, the last the last derby at White Hart Lane was obviously the game that Spurs finally mathematically finished above Arsenal for the first time in 20 however many years it was. 
So th those two, I would say, were probably the most significant in terms of that. Uh, so yeah, those would be the, those would be the two I think that kind of bookend that frustrating period for Spurs of trying to overtake Arsenal and, and not quite doing it. But um, yeah, as I say, I, I actually think the game we just missed out on could have could have been another one that we we looked back on in uh, in future years. But we'll have to see. Yeah, that 2017 one was so emphatic. Like it's one of the most emphatic two nils I think you'll see. Um, and it did feel like a fitting game to confirm that Spurs were finally going to finish above Arsenal because Arsenal weren't even re really in that game Spurs missed a couple of really good chances in the first half and and it, and it felt um, as if they were playing you know those like quite low-key mid-table teams you you have to put away as you're kind of building towards a title challenge or whatever it is it felt like that it didn't feel like uh to me like a white hot north london derby because it just wasn't enough of a of a contest and so i think that was a pretty like damaging one in that um in that rivalry and especially after there had been quite a few false dawns like the 2013 avb 2-1 win that I think it was early March and for all the world it looked like that was confirming Spurs would finally finish above Arsenal because again they were actually so much better than Arsenal that day then Arsenal went on an amazing run pinched fourth and it was kind of like same old story so I think that made 2017 possibly all the sweeter and then I think another quite significant one in between that was that 2015 uh, Harry Kane scoring twice that did feel again like this was a proper rivalry um, in which Spurs could really hold their own yeah, I think the so the three ones I've got written down, which has a little bit of overlap to what we've what we've talked about so far. The first one was the negative spiral game, which was like that was the ABB one, yeah. yeah, where Bale and Lennon scored, and uh, ADB said afterwards. I think we touched on this the other day. Uh, you know, Arsenal are in a negative spiral. We're in a positive spiral. I think was the quote, although I haven't actually googled that. So please correct me, correct me if I'm wrong. And it really, it felt, it felt then like Spurs had cracked it. You know, it felt mm. like you know, Spurs had this young, energetic team, and Arsenal at that point. This, you know, this was bef before they'd signed Özil and Sanchez, I think. Yeah, it was such a, like a boring, slow, predictable Arsenal team. There was a lot. There was no pace. They had like Murtazaka and Arteta and all those old guys, and Spurs blew them away. And it really felt like Spurs had got it, and then they didn't because Arsenal went on this amazing run at the very end of the season to steal it away from them. So that was like, obviously AVB was wrong, but that was still an amazing moment. And then, as Charlie said, the, the Harry Kane header game. So that was for February 2015. So this was, what, the second, like, really big statement win of the Pochettino era after mm. Chelsea won a few weeks before. And um, I kind of feel like Wenger didn't really, Wenger didn't really know what to expect with from the Pochettino team yet. There was a story going around saying that hearing that Wenger, Wenger said that Spurs would tie themselves out there's no way Spurs can do this for 90 minutes and then the second half Spurs were all over Arsenal and they did it and that that the moment when Kane put that header in kind of big towering far post header from a looping cross it was amazing like the like white hotline exploded it was so loud and um again it felt like Spurs had finally got their got their nose ahead of Arsenal in a sense they kind of did although it didn't really like come to fruition until a year or two down the line. And then the other one I've got in here, which is not really quite so positive a memory for a Spurs fan, but I think is one of the best games I've ever covered, was the two all in March 2016, when 
Mm. It looked, you know, that's this was a Saturday lunchtime game, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And if Spurs had won, then they would have gone, I think, level with or just ahead of Leicester, maybe having played a game more in the in the in the league. But obviously, having drawn it, uh, Leicester maintained maintained their lead at the top. And Alderweireld scored, and then Kane scored this ridiculous goal, which you've all seen a million times, where he whipped the ball in from the left hand side into the opposite far top corner, and. I think I think that was one of the biggest celebrations of any goal I've ever seen in White Hart Lane, and it felt for like five minutes as if Spurs were going to win the title. Like I've there was never an amazing. Felt... Do, do, do you remember Jack that there was like someone had let off like a smoke bomb after all the viral scored, and it was really really loud, and there was so much noise, and there were loads of kind of PA announcements about like yeah whatever the football stadium equivalent of Inspector Sands is, you know that kind of <laughs> announcement you get at train stations, and it was like it was it's really kind of tangible like I can't really describe it this feeling in the air that you were watching something absolutely incredible Uh, and then Kane scores this like absolutely ridiculous goal I mean it's it's ludicrous that you shot from that sort of position and like just just beat the keeper so comfortably it was it's mad well also Um, and and at that point Arsenal down to 10 men because Coquelin had been sent off and it did look and it started to pour with rain didn't it it was a really zippy surface and that's when Sanchez scores yeah, that might have been the f- the first kind of Hugo Lloris blunder in a big game, maybe, mm. that, that has become yeah. unfortunately a bit of a trademark for him. But he, he kind of let that run under his body, didn't he? I think it was it was quite a savable shot. Um, and as you say, Jack, you know, it's a big opportunity misses Spurs. I, I don't think that that probably isn't the game that I look at in that season. I think that cost Spurs the title. Um, and actually, to be honest, there isn't really one game that I look at in that season and think that about. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It, it was certainly an opportunity to 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 use a phrase, put the pressure on. Uh, yeah, yeah I, they, they blew. I I felt like if Spurs had won that, then Leicester's psychology would have been different because Leicester yeah. would have needed to win those games, which might have affected how they played. Because I felt like Le- because Leicester always had just enough of a lead that they didn't have to take any risks. Yeah, um, I t- at the the one actually now now we're talking about these horrible memories is the the West Ham away game where. Leicester had drawn at home to West Brom on the Tuesday night and the yeah. Spurs went to West Ham on the Wednesday night and went behind, I think Mikel Antonio scored like in five minutes or something like that. It was very early and Spurs just couldn't find a way back into the game having played, you know, West Ham had a really good season that season but Spurs were clearly a better side and just couldn't like, just didn't really create anything. It was a really sort of frustrating flat performance where they needed to like turn up and like assert themselves on the game and they just didn't do it. That to to me, that's probably the moment actually that I would say you know because they could have gone top of the league, um, yeah. But that that probably was the missed opportunity more than the Arsenal game. Yeah, we should um, we should come back to this with another nostalgia podcast in the next few weeks. Um, is there any other any other North London derbies that stand out that we think are worth worth including? Because I don't think there's been like a classic. When was, has there been a classic North London derby? I mean, the four two was pretty good. That was a, what, eighteen months ago. It's quite dramatic, but again, it was like it also felt like to you know an Ars- a, not a good Arsenal team, and frankly, not a not a great Spurs team by that point. So I don't feel like there's been like a really epic one for a while. Is that unfair? Yeah, there was. I mean, the one that was very eventful was that five-one win in two thousand eight that took uh, Spurs to the League Cup final, um, and that again came during that time where they hadn't beaten Arsenal, I think, since ninety nine. So it was this like explosion of joy, you know, that had so many near misses and then that to just emphatically lay that to rest. And that was a one of those nights where, I mean, Spurs were 
three nil up in no time, I seem to remember, and kind of everything went right. Um, and I guess, yeah, then laid the foundation a couple of years later, they won in the league. But yeah, I think that's one that sticks in the memory of a lot of uh, Spurs supporters. James, have you got anything on, on the 4 all or even the 3-2 win in 2010? Oh. Uh, you must have a yeah, bit of I mean, memories. The, the, the four all, like, I nearly got uh, uh, a shoeing in a southwest London pub for getting so carried away. I don't, I don't wow, think the guys pub? were even. Uh, you know what? I can't actually remember what it's called, and it's definitely changed names since then. I, ironically, I've moved back quite close to there, so probably shouldn't say. Yeah, there, so there, there were two guys in there, and I'm pretty sure they were Chelsea fans rather than Arsenal fans. But they like took exception to how enthusiastically I was celebrating this ludicrous late equaliser, uh, and it got a little bit hairy. And I lived really close; I lived literally just over the road, so I didn't want to like leave and go straight home because then obviously they'd know where I lived. So I kind of went on like a sort of long, long, like an unnecessarily long walk, like around the block and back before I went home. Uh, yeah, I mean that. My, my main take home from that game is that that David Bentley goal is actually rubbish. I really don't like that goal. People go on about it being one of the best Premier League goals of all time. But Almunia basically just fumbles it in. He just kind yeah. of spoons it from 40 yards and Al- Almunia chucks it in. I'm not, I'm not really impressed by goals like that. I just, you know, there's not a lot to it, is there? He's just hit it as hard as he could on the volley. And the goalkeeper's off his line and hasn't been able to keep it out. It's just not, you know, nothing spectacular. The genius goal in that game is a much, uh, is a much better goal. He picks the ball up on like the halfway line. I think it's Traore maybe who slips. He picks the ball up on the halfway line and cuts inside, beats a couple of players and bends one in with his weaker foot. It's a much better goal. <laughs> it, that is a great goal. I, I think it's a bit harsh on Bentley. It's a pretty spectacular effort, but it is poor keeping. I think we've established I've not forgiven David Bentley for his performances at Spurs. <laughs> I think we've also established that we should do a podcast series which was like, that goal you thought was good, it's actually bad. <laughs> yeah. On our um, on football cliches the other day, um, Adam and I were talking about how the Gareth Bale Champions League final goal is overrated. Uh, yeah, yeah you, kind of I, I, I listen to that and I think that's nonsense. Yeah, well, <laughs> there, I, there, I, are, there yeah. have been overhead kicks that I think are overrated, and I think that Rooney one, and I know this has become a bit of a cliche, ironically, but the Rooney one, he shinned that one, the one against Man City, didn't he? But the Bale one is so cleanly hit; it's ludicrous. But James, lots of people will think what you just said is nonsense, well, and therein gone, lies the beauty of this podcast. Okay, well, while we develop uh, goals that you thought were good are actually bad, we will be back next week with another Tottenham Hotspur podcast. Uh, Thank you very much, Charlie and James, for joining us this week. Thank you, Tom. Um, If you've got anything you want us to talk about in future, players, transfers, games, seasons, managers, uh, please just tweet us or send us an email and we'll be back with you next week. (laughs) 